Hello again, I'm Preacher Sean McMahon, and this is part three of our brief but increasingly not brief study of Revelation 20 through 22 and its first century fulfillment in the church. If you've been enjoying these studies, please like and subscribe and of course share all these videos with your friends. So in the first part, we covered the White Throne Judgment, the Great White Throne Judgment. And in the second part, we discussed the New Jerusalem, all subjects of prophecy that were fulfilled in the first century. And in this past second part, our line of inquiry led us to John's vision of the Bride of Christ descending from heaven. And so we've been exploring the topic of the marriage of Christ and the church, the Bride. So in this part, we're going to continue by looking at the prophecy of the wedding feast, or what's also called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I want to emphasize something we touched on in the previous part, that the marriage of Christ and the church actually preceded the marriage supper. And this is an important distinction because the marriage supper in prophecy refers to a specific historical event, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in Anus Domine 70, in the year 70 AD. Um, but this event is not actually the moment that the marriage of Christ and the church occurred, okay? The marriage actually happened at the Passion of Christ, at Calvary, etc., the sign of which was Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now, the first thing I want to show is that the Jewish understanding of things is that the marriage precedes the wedding feast, that this is the Jewish understanding of marriage and wedding feast. Marriage comes first, then the feast, then the banquet. And I want to show this so that we can understand the prophets and Christ himself as the Spirit intended them to be understood by their ancient Jewish listeners when he inspired them to preach about the wedding feast of the Lord in terms of the types of weddings that they would understand in their day, right? So there's a few ways to show this from scripture and from tradition, though I won't focus too much on the latter, not because this is a Bible study, right? It's a Bible study, of course. We want to focus on scripture, but that's not the only reason we're excluding tradition. We want to exclude tradition on principle because I want people to know that the Bible is actually truly sufficient to explain all this stuff, but I wanted to mention tradition because in scripture, there's actually not a lot of information about Jewish wedding customs, which which would be very helpful context for the study of the wedding feast in prophecy. And there is actually a lot to be known from tradition about Jewish wedding customs, just as there is much to be known about the early church and their practices and beliefs from tradition. But for our purposes, we're going to stay in the lane of scripture, even though it might not show us everything we could hope it could in terms of historical context, okay? Because nonetheless, Scripture has very helpful hints, and these hints are utterly sufficient for our understanding, right? Scripture is good, and it edifies the saints. It's going to equip us to know everything we need to know, okay? So, regarding the wedding feast, we know, for instance, from Scripture, that the traditional Jewish wedding feast lasts a week. And we know this from Judges chapter 14, verse 2, and especially Genesis chapter 29. And importantly, we see that the banquet, the wedding banquet, follows the marriage itself, okay? So let's look at Genesis 29, okay? Here, we're going to read it a bit. Jacob said to Laban, Grant me my wife, for my time is complete, and I want to sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of that place and prepared a feast. But when evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob 
and he slept with her, okay? Let's stop there. Now remember, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, so why is he getting Leah, okay? But look what we just learned here, okay? We see here that there is a feast prepared. And the passage isn't clear whether or not there was actual feasting on the evening in question or just preparation. But look how it says, when the evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. Okay? In either case, whether there was actual feasting or only preparation on the evening in question, we can see that the language implies that the preparations and the giving of Leah to Jacob happened on the same day. Okay? And so they were married. They were married. Laban gave Leah to Jacob. They slept together. They were married on this day. Okay? Now bear this in mind as we follow what happens next. Jacob realizes, oh yeah, yeah, I've married Leah instead of Rachel, who I love. Okay, but the father of the women says to Jacob, Laban says, listen, it's not our custom here to give the youngest daughter in marriage before the older. Okay, listen to this next part carefully when Laban says, okay, Jacob, finish this week's celebration and then we'll give you the younger one. Finish this week's celebration and we'll give you the younger one. Did you catch that? So the week-long feast hadn't yet been finished, and yet Jacob was already married to Leah. Okay, and the story continues that Jacob finished the week's celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. Presumably another week of feasting ensued. We're not sure. The text doesn't say that. We can't know for sure. But at any rate, the text clearly just demonstrated that the marriage takes place either before the wedding feast, during its preparations, or at the beginning of the wedding feast, but certainly not at the end, because Jacob had to wait a whole week, okay? Now this is very important. In the previous installment, we talked about how many Christians believe that Christ and the bride are not married until the time of the wedding feast, okay? Of the end. But that's not the case. We already discussed in part two how St. Paul spoke of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as having already espoused the church in Corinth to her husband the Lord, just like Laban espoused Leah to Jacob. Okay. Now our foray into this study of the wedding feast versus the marriage itself is of course in response to a question about St. John's vision of the Bride of Christ descending from heaven in Revelation 21. And in the previous part, I also showed how this vision was not of a future event, uh, an event in John's future associated with the wedding feast, but no less than the same vision which St. Paul had seen when he spoke in Hebrews chapter 12 of his vision of Mount Zion. Right? They were both seeing the same thing. It was a glimpse of a spiritual reality of the church, which was already present in John's time. Right? They were seeing... A revelation an unveiling okay and I use that language of unveiling on purpose because that is the meaning of apocalypse the unveiling of Jesus Christ the apocalypse of Jesus Christ okay the unveiling so in the next installment I want to talk more about this unveiling as we continue our study of the wedding feast in light of Revelation 20 through 22 because as you know a bride wears what a veil a bride wears a veil at a wedding, and we're going to talk about what that veil is, how it was removed, and how that relates to the wedding feast of the Lord. So thanks for listening, and please subscribe, like everything, and make sure you follow so you get the next installment as it comes out. And if you have any questions or comments, please leave them. Thanks so much.